Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we are going to be doing another one of our fact or fiction episodes. And unlike a previous episode where it was just Chris Jennings and I going through a few questions, a few statements, and making a determination on whether they were factual or whether they were fictitious, today I am joined by one of our experts, one of the guests that has been with us on some previous episodes, Dr. Ray Alisoskis, research scientist with the Wildlife Research Division of Environment and Climate Change Canada. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Hi again, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and here we go. That's right, folks. It's everybody's favorite game show, where we separate the forgeries from the real McCoy. Sometimes the waters can get a little muddy, but have no fear, because our authors of accuracy, our legends of legitimacy, our white knights of certainty, and our educators of exactitude will set the record straight in today's edition of Factor Fiction. Feel free to play along at home as we strip down the rumors and reveal the naked truth in all its glory. This is Fact or Fiction. Thanks again for joining us here, Ray. People that know you and have heard prior episodes with you will probably guess that today's fact or fiction episode is going to focus on Arctic geese. Uh, Specifically, I think some questions that we received from a listener related to snow geese and Ross's geese. And so there's probably not a better expert or maybe there maybe there's a handful of folks I don't want to uh, I, I don't want to discount anybody's expertise on this there's a handful of you that could do a do a great job with these questions and you're one of them and so yeah the backstory on this is quite simply we had a listener reach out to us and say can you answer these questions and we th- thought this fit nicely within this idea of some episodes of, of fact or fiction. So we're going to jump right into these, Ray. Uh, you will you, you joined us on a previous episode here and gave us the rundown on on the what we what we were understanding regarding productivity from 2021. So we're going to jump right in here to a fact or fiction episode. And I'm going to make I'm going to offer up these little statements here and you tell me if you think these are fact or fiction and you can offer whatever type of supporting information you can to uh, to back that up. So the first statement from our listener, blue phase geese eventually turn white. What say you, Ray? False. All right, well, tell us why. Well, it's uh, it's pretty straightforward Mendelian genetics. Uh, you know, you should get Rocky Rockwell on here because he's looked at a lot of that he stuff. Was, but he I, was one of the other experts that I mentioned that I was referencing. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, um, But I've read some of his papers, probably most of them, uh, and him and Fred Cook. And I mean, they, they've known quite some time ago now that it's, it's pretty well a simple Mendelian, fairly simple uh, genetic uh, determination of uh, a dominant recessive. I can't remember if which gene is dominant, but it's genetic. Like, so if you come out a blue face goose, you stay a blue face goose your, your entire life. Same with snow geese, yeah. Now, so tell us the history on this though. There was a time when you roll back the clock where prior to our really detailed understanding of the genetics, people thought, scientists thought these could be two separate species, blue blue goose and white goose or blue goose and snow goose, right? Right, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Graham Cooch, I mean, he did a PhD uh, back in the 50s on the, the 
I forget what the name of it is, but great work, uh, pioneering work in the article when uh, you know you had to go in by dog team the year before kind of thing and and so on. So he, he uncovered a lot of information about blue geese uh, nesting on Southampton. There's other folks, uh, Dewey Soper worked with them on Baffin Island. Uh, but yeah, and I mean, they still to this day, uh, I can't remember if taxonomically they were considered separate species. I think that's correct. I think that is correct. Or but at least subspecies. I can't remember that either, right. right? Yeah, well, so greater snow and lesser snow are definitely subspecies. So it could be that blue geese were considered that we should look into the history of that. And I think you're probably right about that, Mike. But uh, it's kind of persisting, you know, like, for example, all the data about snow goose harvest, they still have it separated by blue geese. Like they each have their own AOU, American Ornithologist Union numbers. So there's blue geese are still uh, considered separately from snow geese in the banding data, in the harvest data, for example. And so, yeah, uh, that legacy is still on. And yeah, you know, there, there's a strong climb east to west. You know, the blue geese tend to be eastern birds in the northeast part of the Arctic. And, you know, Mackatee and uh, Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, uh, McElhenney, you know, the, the famous uh, hot sauce yep. family is quite the naturalist down there on the coastal marshes in Louisiana. And he wrote The Blue Goose and Its Winter Home back in, I think, in the 30s. Uh, fascinating stuff, great natural history. And and uh, so, yeah, there's this climb that, you know, blue geese to the east and, and snow geese in Texas uh, during winter back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, Garwood Prairie and so on. So, yeah, there's a, this geographic variation that probably helped to promote the idea, but they're not separate species. We know that because they can freely interbreed. Uh, and uh, the gosling, the color phase of the goslings that comes out depends on whether uh, you know the parents are you know homozygous or heterozygous blue or snow geese. So uh, that's that's for Rocky to address. Yeah. So it is it is false. It is fiction that a that a blue phase goose eventually turns white, as you mentioned there. It's um, what what they come out as as genetically is what they they develop into or they stay they stay as. Now, I guess one little caveat there might be that uh, juvenile birds, juvenile white phase snow geese can be a little gray colored, right? They they're not as bright white from the beginning. They have some gray coloration on their contour, their body feathers, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and the blue young blue geese are quite dark, very dark gray versus light gray of young snow geese. So um, that's true. But then as soon as they get a white head, whether they're blue or snow geese, that, that's the adult plumage. Both blue and snow geese have that white head. And you know, I mean, if you get uh, well, I guess some folks call those blue geese eagle heads in, mm -hmm. in places uh, around the continent. So, and that's why they got both those white heads, even despite the body being sort of a dark gray or blue, bluish kind of tinge to it. I guess. Next statement here, Ray, that we want to do a fact or fiction on is: it is possible to age Ross's geese by the amount of warts or caruncles on the bill. That's it's. It's true uh, in that, you know, their young geese don't have any. Uh, there's a paper by uh, Bob McLean, the famous Bob McLandris now from, hails from Manitoba, but lives in California as far as I know. But anyway, uh, Bob did his PhD work with uh, geese and, and he focused on Ross geese and snow geese, spent time in the Arctic. Uh, but one of the papers he 
He actually spent time at Carrick Lake back in the 70s, spent a whole summer there and banded birds. But one of his papers had to do with these caruncles, and he, he suggested that they, they serve a function, and it's a sort of a sexual selection thing. And they use, in their aggressive behavior, they use these uh, the size of these caruncles, which increase with age, um, just generally. It's not very specific, but older birds tend to have not only more, but more elaborate. You know, we, we joke sometimes you see some of these things with a, kind of a caruncle that are sort of like almost like a horn hanging off each side of the bill and another one coming out the, wow. the middle. We'd call them jokers because that, you know, the joker's hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some were pretty exceptional, unbelievable. And they tend to be more elaborate in males and females, although it happens in both sexes. And it does increase with age. So it's true. But not a hundred percent true. Like a, you know, if you you get a real trophy, he's, he's going to be an older bird. I think these things really quite swell up during spring too, when when the legs get a lot redder than they are throughout the rest of the year and, and so on. So so true mostly. All right, the next one here again. All these coming from one of our listeners, and we appreciate that listener for sending these in. This is not so much a statement, but it's a question. Why? And I don't know what your what your expertise is going to be able to bring to this. I'm not sure how much is known about this. Why are blue phase Ross's geese so rare? Yeah, well, it's true that they are rare. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Way to go. I like that. um, Yeah, I think it's probably one in, I can't remember. There was, we figured this out. It's like one in 10,000 or or something like that. Uh, that could have been from, the thing is, these blue Roskies, they're not always pure Roskies. There are good blue Roskies, I think, but often what you get are a hybrid that's a, a blue phase hybrid between a snow, like a blue phase snow goose and a, and a Ross goose. So those, if you throw those out, they're even more rare than one in 10,000. Uh, but a good blue, you could, it's got kind of this mohawk that comes like almost down to the forehead from and and very very high black neck. But why they're so rare? I think you know if you, some of the speculation about where these things evolved. Like blue geese are in eastern North America during, and there could have been a refugium there um, that they were centered in, like nesting that was isolated from the rest of North America. For example, the Alaskan refugium in the west. So it's possible that you know Ross geese uh, were. 100% white face, and then uh, because of uh, you know, um, even though they they they're sympatric now, they still don't seem to interbreed all that much like a blue face snow goose and a white face snow goose would. So you know, there's a size mismatch, right? I mean, if you push that too, you know, things aren't going to fit or overfit or whatever. I guess this is a family show, so. We'll keep it at that, but um, you know, there's obviously got to be some matching up in terms of body size, and although they break the rules sometimes because of these hybrids. So I'll, I'll give you the answer is I don't know why they're so rare, but it probably has to do with the, the paths that each species has evolved into uh, based on their past distribution. And it could be that blue face is more advantageous in terms of uh, you know gosling survival. Uh, like for example, blue face geese might survive better in the eastern Arctic, where conditions are I don't know different than they are in the western Arctic during the during the summer season. So the rules are slightly different, and this this one one or two genes that controls this color phase is very common in snow geese, especially the guys that nest in the east, but very uncommon in Ross geese, uh, which used to be a Western North American thing 
distribution during winter, but now they're they're caused, you know they're found in the Mississippi and Central Phylum much more commonly than even in the Pacific. So just in the last three four decades, things have changed. So we might see Roskies getting a little more uh, the blue phase Roskies getting a little more common. Don't know. So that was obviously a great question from our listener, and it is proof that we still don't know everything there is to know about waterfowl. And whether we realized it, whether you realized it or not, uh, our listeners out there, what you just heard was some of the early steps of the scientific process where we make an observation and and when then we we kind of come up with some ideas and some thoughts and or quote hypotheses about what might explain that phenomenon. And so, Ray, I guess the next step is for you and your your scientific partners to go out and collect some data uh, to test those hypotheses that you were throwing out there. Well, it's, it's always nice to have empirical support for, for, for any ideas, but we're still allowed to speculate in the absence of uh, any data. Uh, it's always fun to prove or disprove one's ideas. Uh, and if you're wrong, shouldn't get upset about it. You still learn something by being wrong. So that's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. One more, another question here, and I'm going to state this in the form of a you know fact or fiction type deal. Light geese, and I think we're talking about snow geese here. Uh, snow geese are the highest flying species of waterfowl in North America. Fact or fiction? What do you know about that? You know. I don't know for sure. Um, in North America, I mean, I've seen, I think there's, if if one is a superior flyer in terms of altitude over another, like, for example, snow geese over white fronts, I've seen them both, uh, you know, typically during a mig- migration flight, not a feeding flight, but a migration flight if they're leaving the Saskatchewan, from Saskatchewan, just, you know, boogieing down Arkansas in one shot. You know, I've seen them uh, on these mass movements that, you know, they're about a mile high. Not all of them. There's a lot of overlap. I don't know what species it was. Sometimes they're only you know a thousand feet high versus five thousand, and so you do tend to see them flying at variable altitudes. I would believe it if uh, the snow geese was found to be a higher, you know, much higher flyer than other species. I mean, it should be able to be determined using with the now GPS technology that you can slap these things on, and and uh, they have a sen- you know they have an altitude sensor as well as uh, accelerometers that you know all all the different sensors that are available, temperature, velocity, blah, blah, blah. So somebody could answer that definitively. Um, The thing is, you know, uh, I know for a fact that probably the the species that takes the cake in terms of being taken a record for a high altitude flight would be the bar-headed, excuse me, bar-headed goose that that has to cross the Himalayas uh, twice a year as they go to their wintering grounds in India from north of the Himalayas in Eurasia. So, you know, that's, what is that, 7,000, what is it, 27,000 feet, like it's five miles high, they have to they have to cross those. Plus, they've got a little more to clear the mountain, so another 1,000 feet or so. Uh, and there's been some physiological work done with that. They apparently do this without really, somehow they can do it without uh, elevating their metabolic rate, and there's, so there's some efficiencies there. Birds are pretty amazing just to start with anyway, with the anatomy that they have that allow them to, you know, to, to do what they do, that separate from mammals. So there's a whole bunch of textbooks you could look up on that. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. Ray, the last question I'm going to ask you here, the fact or fiction is one that I just came up with off, off the top of my, my head, and I want to see what your response is. So fact or fiction, Carrick Lake is the most famous snow goose colony on the planet. 
Well, of course that's true. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Uh, it's one of uh, several important ones, but uh, it's one that I know the most about. But uh, no, I, I know. I, I, nice try. Nice try, though. Mike. <laughs> I was just yeah. going to have some fun with you there. I guess we'll find out if Rocky listened to these podcasts. He might reach out to us and care to dispute that. So that would be a fair disputation because LPB is pretty famous. Yep. Lockridge Bay has been going since the '68. We only started in '91, so. Only about three decades of work there. Yeah, for sure. Ray, that's the extent of our questions right now. This has been fun. Just a quick little episode that we wanted to do in response to some questions and comments from one of our listeners. So if any of our listeners are out there, hear this and have some follow-up questions for us, or if you have some information re- relative to any of the, uh, the the statements, fact or fiction discussions that we had here today, certainly send those in, dupodcast at ducks.org, and, and you might hear us talk about those those questions or those follow-up comments on a future episode. And there you have it, folks. I think we all learned a little something today as our fearless host gave our collective noggins a little tune-up. Feel free to share these educational tidbits at your next duck hunt, cocktail party, or PTA meeting. And if you have any additional questions that have been rattling around your brain searching for an answer, then please email Mike and Chris at dupodcast at ducks.org and they'll separate the baloney from the bona fide. Class dismissed. Tune in next time for Fact or Fiction. Thank you for your time and, and expertise. Thanks for joining us and look forward to catching up with you again on one of these. You betcha. Always a slice, Mike. Keep up the good work. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Ray Alisaskas, the research scientist with the Wildlife Research Division of Environment and Climate Change Canada. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the terrific job he does getting these episodes out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for spending your time with us and for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time. Stay tuned to the ducks.